Chapter Seven of the Bird Study Book. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bird Study Book by T. Gilbert Pearson. Chapter Seven: Civilization's Effect on the Bird Supply. Twelve hundred kinds of wild birds have been positively identified in North America. About one third of this number are called subspecies or climatic varieties. To illustrate the meaning of subspecies, it may be stated that in Texas the plumage of the bobwhite is lighter in color than the plumage of the typical eastern bobwhite, which was first described to science. Therefore, the Texas bird is known as a subspecies of the type. Distributed through North America are 19 subspecies of the eastern song sparrow. These vary from the typical bird by differences in size and shades of marking. In a similar way, there are nine climatic variations of screech owls, six long-billed marsh wrens, and fourteen horned larks. It is difficult to explain why this variation in color and size is so pronounced in some species, and yet is totally absent in others of equally wide range. The morning dove breeds in many localities from the southern tier of Canadian provinces southward through the United States and Mexico, and yet everywhere over this vast range the birds are the same in size and color. Nowhere do the individuals exhibit any markings suggestive of climatic influences. Some birds are very rare and are admitted to the list of North American species because of the fact that during the years a few stragglers from other parts of the world have been found on our continent. Thus the scarlet ibis from South America and the kestrel and rook from Western Europe are known to come to our shores only as rare wanderers who had lost their way or were blown hither by storms. Eighty-five species of the birds now listed for North America are of this extra-limital class. Among those naturally inhabiting the country, some are, of course, much more abundant than others. Thus every one knows that bald eagles are comparatively rare, and that robins and chipping sparrows exist by millions. The number of birds in different states. The number of kinds of birds found in any one state depends on the size of the state, its geographical situation, and the varieties of its climate as affected by the topography in reference to mountains, coastlines, etc. The number of bird students and the character of their field studies determine the extent to which the birds of a state have been catalogued and listed. Increase of Garden and Farm Birds The effect of civilization on the bird life of North America has been both pronounced and varied in character. Ask almost anyone over fifty years of age if there are as many birds about the country as there were when he was a boy and invariably he will answer no. This reply will be made not because all birds have decreased in numbers, but because there has come a change in the man's ideas and viewpoint. In short, the change is chiefly a psychological one. The gentleman doubtless does not see the birds as much as he did when he was a boy on a farm, or if he does, they do not make the same impression on his mind. It is but another example of the human tendency to regard all things as better in the good old times. Let us turn then from such well-meant but inaccurate testimony and face the facts as they exist. I have no hesitation in saying that with many species of finches, warblers, thrushes, and wrens, their numbers in North America have greatly increased since the first coming of the white men to our shores. It is a fact well known to careful observers that the deep, unbroken forests do not hold the abundance of bird life that is to be found in a country of farmlands interspersed with thickets and groves. Originally extensive regions of eastern North America were covered with forests, wherein birds that thrive in open countries 
could not find suitable habitation. As soon as the trees were cut, the face of the country began to assume an aspect which greatly favored such species as the bobolink, meadowlark, quail, vesper sparrow, and others of the field-loving varieties. The open country brought them suitable places to nest, and agriculture increased their food supply. The settlers began killing off the wolves, wild cats, skunks, opossums, snakes, and many of the predatory hawks, thus reducing the numbers of natural enemies with which this class of birds has to contend. When the swamp is drained, it means that the otter, the mink, and the wild duck must go, but the meadowland that takes the place of the swamp provides for an increased number of other species of wildlife. Effect of Forest Devastation Only in a comparatively few cases has bird life suffered from the destruction of forests. In parts of the Middle West, the woodpeckers have no doubt decreased in numbers. There are places where one may travel for many miles without seeing a single grove in which these birds could live. Passenger pigeons, as late as 1870, were frequently seen in enormous flocks. Their numbers during the periods of migration was one of the greatest ornithological wonders of the world. Now the birds are gone. What is supposed to have been the last one died in captivity in the Zoological Park of Cincinnati at 2 p.m. on the afternoon of September 1, 1914. Despite the generally accepted statement that these birds succumbed to the guns, snares, and nets of hunters, there is a second cause which doubtless had its effect in hastening the disappearance of the species. The cutting away of vast forests where the birds were accustomed to gather and feed on mast greatly restricted their feeding range. They collected in enormous colonies for the purpose of rearing their young, and after the forests of the northern states were so largely destroyed, the birds seemed to have been driven far up into Canada, quite beyond their usual breeding range. Here, as Forbush suggests, the summer probably was not sufficiently long to enable them to rear their young successfully. The ivory-billed woodpecker, the largest member of the woodpecker family found in the United States, is now nearly extinct. There are some in the wilder regions of Florida and a few in the swamps of upper Louisiana, but nowhere does the bird exist in numbers. It has been thought by some naturalists that the reduction of the forest areas was responsible for this bird's disappearance, but it is hard to believe that this fact alone was sufficient to affect them so seriously for the birds live mainly in swamps, and in our southern states there are extensive lowland regions that remain practically untouched by the axeman. For some reason, however, the birds have been unable to withstand the advance of civilization, and like the paraquet, the disappearance of which is almost equally difficult to explain, it will soon be numbered within the lengthening list of species that have passed away. The Commercializing of Birds with the exceptions noted above, the birds that have noticeably decreased in numbers in North America are those on whose heads a price has been set by the markets. Let a demand once arise for the bodies or the feathers of a species, and immediately a war is begun upon it that, unless speedily checked, spells disaster for the unfortunate bird. The Labrador Duck and Others A hundred years ago, the Labrador Duck, known to Audubon as the Pied Duck, was abundant in the waters of the North Atlantic and it was hunted and shot regularly in fall, winter, and spring along the coast of New England and New York. Their breeding grounds were chiefly on the islands and along the shores of Labrador, as well as on the islands and mainland about the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Anyone over forty years of age will remember how very popular feather beds used to be. In fact, there are those of us who know from experience that in many rural sections the deep feather bed is still regarded as the pièce de résistance of the careful householder's equipment. 
There was a time when the domestic poultry of New England did not furnish as great a supply of feathers as was desired. Furthermore, eiderdown was recognized as the most desirable of all feathers for certain domestic uses. A hundred and fifty years ago, New England seafaring men frequently fitted out vessels and sailed to the Labrador coast in summer on feather voyages. The feathers sought were those of the Labrador duck and the eider. These adventurous bird pirates secured their booty either by killing the birds or taking the down from the nests. The commercializing of the Labrador duck meant its undoing. The last one known to have been taken was killed by a hunter near Long Island, New York, in 1875. Forty-two of these birds only are preserved in the ornithological collections of the whole world. Another species which succumbed to the persistent persecution of mankind was the great cormorant that at one time was extremely abundant in the northern Pacific and Bering Sea. They were killed for food by Indians, whalers, and others who visited the regions where the birds spent the summer. The great cormorant has been extinct in those waters since the year 1850. Great auks were once numbered literally by millions in the North Atlantic. They were flightless and exceedingly fat. They were easily killed with clubs on the breeding rookeries and provided an acceptable meat supply for fishermen and other toilers of the sea. Also, their feathers were sought. They were very common off Labrador and Newfoundland. Funk Island, especially, contained an enormous breeding colony. For years, fishermen going to the banks in early summer depended on auks for their meat supply. The birds probably bred as far south as Massachusetts, where it is known a great many were killed by Indians during certain seasons of the year. However, it was the white man who brought ruin to this magnificent sea-fowl, for the savage Indians were too provident to exterminate any species of bird or animal. The great auk was last seen in America between 1830 and 1840, and the final individual, so far as there is any positive record, was killed off Iceland in 1841. About 80 specimens of this bird and 70 eggs are preserved in the natural history collections of the world. The trumpeter swan and the whooping crane are nearly extinct today. Constant shooting and the extensive settling of the prairies of the northwest have been the causes of their disappearance. Diminution of Other Species Of the 55 kinds of wild ducks, geese, and swans commonly found in North America, there is probably not one as numerous today as it was a hundred or even fifty years ago. Why? The markets where their bodies commanded a price of so much per head have swallowed them up. The shotgun has also played havoc with the prairie chicken and the sage-grouse. Of the former, possibly as many as one thousand exist on the Heath Hen Reservation of Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, a pitiful remnant of the eastern form of the species. Even in the prairie states, wide ranges of country that formerly knew them by tens of thousands now know them no more. We might go farther and note also the rapidly decreasing numbers of the sandhill crane and the limpkin of Florida. They are being shot for food. The large white egret, the snowy egret, and the roseate spoonbill are found in lessening numbers each year because they have been commercialized. There is a demand in the feather trade which can be met only by the use of their plumage and as no profitable means has been devised for raising these birds in captivity, the few remaining wild ones must be sacrificed, for, from the standpoint of the killers, it is better that a few men should become enriched by bird slaughter than that many people should derive pleasure from the birds, which add so much beauty and interest to the landscape. Change of Nesting Habits 
The nesting habits of some birds have been revolutionized by the coming of civilization to the American wilderness. The swallow family provides three notable examples of this. The cliff swallow and the barn swallow, that formerly built their nests on exposed cliffs, now seek the shelter of barns and other outbuildings for this purpose. The open nest of the barn swallow is usually found on the joists of hay barns and large stables, and not infrequently on similar supports of wide verandas. The cliff sparrow builds its gourd-shaped mud nest under the eaves, and hence is widely known as the eaves swallow. No rest of any kind in the form of a projecting beam is needed, as the bird skillfully fastens the mud to the vertical side of the barn close up under the overhanging roof. In such a situation, it is usually safe from all beating rains. The cliff swallow has exhibited wisdom to no mean extent in exchanging the more or less exposed rocky ledge for the safety of sheltering eaves. Swallows show a decided tendency to gather in colonies in the breeding season. Under the eaves of a warehouse on the coast of Maine, I once counted exactly 100 nests of these birds, all of which appeared to be inhabited. Examination of another building less than 70 feet away added 37 occupied nests to the list. The nesting site of the purple martin has likewise been changed in a most radical fashion. Originally these birds built their nests of leaves, feathers, and grass in hollow trees. Here, no doubt, they were often disturbed by weasels, squirrels, snakes, and other consumers of birds and their eggs. Some of the southern Indians hung gourds up on poles, and the martins learned to build their nests in them. This custom is still in vogue in the south, and thousands of martin houses throughout the country are erected every year for the accommodation of these interesting birds. By their cheerful twitterings and their vigilance in driving from the neighborhood every hawk and crow that ventures near, they not only repay the slight effort made in their behalf, but endear themselves to the thrifty chicken-raising farmwives of the country. If gourds or boxes cannot be found, martins will sometimes build about the eaves of buildings or similar places. They have learned that it is wise to nest near human habitations. At Plant City, Florida, one may find their nests in the large electric arc lights swinging in the streets, and at Clearwater, Florida, and in Bismarck, North Dakota, colonies nest under the projecting roofs of store buildings. I have always been interested in finding nests of birds, but I think no success in this line ever pleased me quite so much as the discovery of two pairs of purple martins making their nests one day in May down on the edge of the Everglade country in South Florida. There were no bird boxes or gourds for at least twenty or thirty miles around, so the birds had appropriated some old flicker nesting cavities in dead trees, that is, one pair of the birds had appropriated a disused hole, and the second pair was busy trying to carry nesting material into a flicker's nest from which the young birds had not yet departed. Here then were martins preparing to carry on their domestic duties, just as they did back in the old primeval days. The discussion of this subject could not well be closed without mentioning the chimney swift that now almost universally glues to the inner side of a chimney, or more rarely the inner wall of some building, the few little twigs that constitute its nest. It is only in the remotest parts of the country that these birds still resort to hollow trees for nesting purposes. There is, or was a few years ago, a hollow cypress tree standing on the edge of Big Lake in North Carolina, which was used by a pair of chimney swifts, and it made one feel as if he were living in primitive times to see these little dark birds dart downward into a hollow tree, miles and miles away from any friendly chimney. Some day I hope to revisit the region, and find this natural nesting hollow still occupied by a pair of unmodernized swifts. End of chapter 7